one of the things was uh, we used to use years ago when I was part of another organization, we used to use liquid Ativan all the time. That was part of the comfort pack. That's what came to help for patients with restlessness and shortness of breath. We would use liquid Ativan. And then- for patients or their families? <laughs> <laughs> for all of us. We just put it in an nebulizer like- for everybody. <laughs> Welcome to the Mastering Medicare podcast, where we demystify healthcare and Medicare for senior serving professionals and providers with your co-hosts, Dr. Alex Moseni and Dr. Amy Schiffman. Visit MasteringMedicare.net for show notes, additional episodes, and valuable resources. Hello, everybody. Good morning. This is Dr. Alex Moseni. Welcome to Mastering Medicare. We're so excited to bring uh, a new guest uh, to our podcast today. And my co-host, Dr. Amy Schiffman, is going to introduce her. Okay. I am so excited about this podcast, Alex, mostly because I've wanted to have Kathy on this podcast since before COVID. But then COVID canceled and then everything fell to, you know, poop and that was that. All right. So I am so excited to have with us today, Kathy Gerson. Now, Kathy, I know because she and I worked together, she was, I'm just going to call you like the chief czar in charge of a hospice. (laughs) And I was the medical director of that hospice. And we basically started a hospice together, although you really started the hospice. I just kind of like watched you be super organized and super amazing with it. And we actually went through a Medicare, what would you call that? Like we actually started a hospice. They had like come and decide that we were hospice worthy. You got us all the way through from like a a twinkle in someone's eye to a full-fledged hospice. What is that called? That was our, of course, I can't remember the name of it at the moment. And that was our our certification visit. Certification visit. Like we started a hospice slash you started a hospice. So Kathy is amazing. She actually has not just done hospice work, has done home health, has been the executive director of a home health agency, has worked in hospice for 10 to 15 years, which seems like a very broad range, but okay. And um, it's either 10 or 15 years. We've lost five years somewhere. And we have enjoyed the benefits of learning together and um, trying to master Medicare together, if you will. And I'm so excited to have you on the show today because today is going to be all about hospice, which it's almost tragic and embarrassing that we haven't done hospice until now, given that so much of what I have done that has helped to define me in terms of what I've done for the past 10 years has been in the hospice world. But we're going to talk about that part A benefit, Alex, that part A benefit called hospice. Are you guys ready? Yes. So I'm ready. excited. You're so ready. Okay. So, Kathy, why don't you tell me what your first job is to do for somebody who wants to be in hospice? Like, what is it that what is the job of a hospice when someone wants to be on hospice or in hospice or on hospice or whatever we say? So I think it's really important at first to understand how that person comes to hospice. If it's going to be a doctor calling us to say, I have a patient who I really think needs hospice, or if it's a family member who's calling to say, I've heard this word floated around my loved one and I want to know what it means and I want to know more about how this is going to go go on for them. So it really depends. You have to assess the education level of that person around how much they know around hospice. And sometimes these primary care physicians, they also don't know a lot about hospice and they think that hospice is a... <laughs> hospice is a place where, you know, doesn't seem like anything else I can do uh, for this patient. So hospice, I guess. And so they're kind of coming to you with a question mark. Families come to you with a question mark. So really the first thing we do 
when we when we answer the phone for that new person, that new physician, that new loved one, is to find out what they know about hospice. And we'll ask where they're, you know, tell us what's going on, tell us about your loved one, find out if they've recently been in the hospital, what, what were they there for, and start to feel it out to get more information so that we can start kind of building the plan for them ahead of time. So I, 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 for the benefit of our audience, I, I do want to step back for a second because we, we live in the weeds. I do want to start from the <laughs> top level. So Kathy, could you kind of give us a high level recap of what is hospice? I would love to. Hospice has always been my absolute passion. So the, to have somebody ask me about to give you the, the bare bones of hospice, I would, I would love to do because it's something I really love talking about and something I really love educating about because it's such an important and such a valuable service to people. So hospice is a service that's covered by your, the Part A benefit of your Medicare, and it's covered at 100%. And what that covers is end-of-life care. So when a patient has received a terminal diagnosis or no longer wants to seek curative treatment for their condition, and a doctor can, can safely say, confidently say that they wouldn't expect them to live longer than six more months uh, without any ex life extending treatments, then that person would be eligible for hospice. So it, for people who are ready to no longer seek curative treatment, but still want to be cared for and have their symptoms managed, those are the folks that we're looking at for hospice. And what I find really interesting, and I didn't know until Amy taught me, and maybe you can talk a little bit about this, is that once you enter the hospice category of Medicare, like from the billing and reimbursement side, it seems like you're kind of carved out from the, or pulled out from the other elements, right? You're not then separately yeah. billing for well, encounters for Part B and other things, right? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure. There's like a really good, you know, reason for that to be the case. So the, the hospice benefit itself from Part A is extraordinarily generous in terms of in comparison to a lot of the other elements of what Medicare covers. So when you're in hospice, everything is covered at 100 percent. The medications that the nurses bring in, all of the nursing visits, all of the, the chaplain, the, the nurses aides that come in to do the personal care any equipment that a patient would need, so an electric bed like you have in the hospital or oxygen or bedside tables, I mean, anything like that is all covered. And because that benefit is so generous, then all the other benefits, so uh, a physical therapy benefit or the Part Bs or any of those, the hospitalization coverage is not covered concurrently when you're on hospice. Now, that's not to say that you couldn't access those benefits if you needed to, but you would have to turn off the hospice benefit in order to be able to do that. So in order to, if you wanted to explore physical therapy or you, you know, wanted to be hospitalized for, for, for some reason, you wanted to have that, that surgery or whatever it was, first of all, those are conversations that you'd want to have before you started hospice. So we'd had, we'd talk about whether or not you were ready to say, listen, I don't want to try physical therapy again, or, you know, I'm, I don't want to do that, that exploratory surgery or that, that experimental treatment at the hospital. I don't want to do that anymore. But, and then you would come into hospice, but those benefits cannot run concurrently. 
I want to out Alex Alex. I want to out Alex Alex. I want to take it up one more step, which is to sort of review, even at a higher level, the Part A benefits so that we do totally understand that they're, yes, once you have chosen one of the Part A benefits to be in, like while you're in the hospital, you cannot be in hospice. While you're receiving Medicare Part A home health, that skilled home health benefit, you cannot be getting hospice. While you were in a nursing home receiving rehabilitative treatment, in that nursing home, you not you cannot concurrently be in hospice. So the four elements of Part A, Medicare, you can only be getting one of them at any given time because you are basically what is called reassigning your benefits to hospice. However, I am going to say one thing, and Kathy already knows this, but I'm just going to clarify it, which is the Part B services. As an example, let's just pretend you are on hospice, but for some reason, you still need to go see your endocrinologist for whatever reason, and it is not part of your terminal illness, the reason that you're going to see that endocrinologist, those benefits will be covered. There are some weird billing issues that that endocrinologist needs to understand, and actually there's tremendous misunderstanding on the part of both specialist and primary care doctors about, ooh, that person's on hospice. Nope, not going to take care of them, never going to get paid, never going to, just don't come in. So there, there's misunderstandings. There's actually like a GV and a GW modifier, which somebody can use when they're sending in their 1500 form or, or billing through whatever billing mechanism they have to bill Medicare that will allow a doctor to actually bill for services under Part B, even if the person is on hospice. But an oncologist might have trouble if the person's terminal diagnosis is, let's say, breast cancer, and they send in a bill that says, oh, I'm seeing this person for breast cancer. It's questionable as to whether or not that oncologist will get paid for that visit. Okay, Very then. interesting. So I I did not know that if it's unrelated, then the mm-hmm. hospice patient's mm-hmm. encounter could still be billed separately. But putting that sort of exception aside, it almost seems like hospice should have been made like a part H for hospice because it's kind of like it's kind of like an MA plan where they're rolling everything into one and you're getting a, a, a per diem, right, which is essentially the same concept as an MA plan where you're getting a set amount of money and then the, the MA plan or the hospice essentially, meaning the, the hospice has to then kind of take care of everything, right? At risk. That is at what risk. hospice mm-hmm. is at risk. They have to manage their dollars, right, Kathy? So, so hospice, <laughs> Tell me twice. <laughs> so hospice is kind of like an MA plan for those who are end of life, right? Am I summarizing it right? And so to be clear, when you when you say that all those benefits that you talked about are, quote unquote, covered, what we're really saying is, is that CMS is paying the hospice agency a certain amount of money for each hospice patient. And, and then mm-hmm. when th- that, that hospice patient needs certain things, the hospice agency is the one who's covering those costs. Um, That's correct. Right? That's correct. Um, yeah. So... So talk about, you know, it, when we when we talk about that concept in in the, the analogous kind of MA plan, it's in the best interest of the MA plan to, you know, to to limit resource utilization. So how do you how do you when you're trying to make money, right, which is a legitimate business interest of the hospice, right? You don't want to use too many resources, yet you have you know, your, your patients are the most fragile 
and potentially, you know, in need folks out there. Like, is there some conflict there? Is there some discomfort that we'd like to do this for this person, but we just can't afford it? Or is there some really happy medium that that hospice has been able to find where they feel really comfortable that they're able to do what the patient needs and and still, you know, run a, a legitimate business? I think there are a lot of ways that hospices can really manage that that fine line. And a lot of it comes through education, and that's educating your staff, and that's educating your patients and their families. Because when the families and the loved ones and the patients feel comfortable in what's happening and what the course of treatment is and and what to do when and who to call when, you run into less crisis care visits, you run into less situations where decisions need to be made quickly. And sometimes the the easiest thing to reach for to solve this problem is, is the most expensive thing. But you educate your staff too. And you talk about different ways that you can, can serve the same purpose, but perhaps at a, at a lower cost point. One of the things was uh, we used to use years ago when I was part of another organization, we used to use liquid Ativan all the time. That was part of the comfort pack. That's what came to help for patients with restlessness and shortness of breath. We would use liquid Ativan. And then- for patients or their families? <laughs> <laughs> for all of us. We just put it in an just nebulizer like- for everybody. No. <laughs> so we would have liquid Ativan. It turns out liquid Ativan is tremendously expensive. And the other thing about liquid Ativan is it comes in a big bottle with a lot of doses in it. So you'd end up wasting quite a bit of it if a patient passed and it was a very expensive thing. And so we came to find out that we could actually get tablets of Ativan. We can crush them, put them in just a few drops of water, still bring them up into a syringe to give them to someone who couldn't take an oral tablet comfortably and still be able to get it into that mucous membrane. And it was significantly cheaper. So finding places like that where you can make a substitution where the outcome is the same, but the cost point was, was much different. Understanding, and that's educating your staff, about what things we're going to be ordering, what equipment you can use that, you know, you don't have to get the Ferrari every single time unless it's needed. Let's let's figure out what the patient needs uh, and get them those things and then and then build out as we need to. Does I want to understand kind of the mechanics of the business of hospice a little bit, because I think that gives me a good framework for then understanding the clinical care. Does does every hospice patient generate the same per diem for the agency, or is it more like an MA plan where it kind of depends on how sick or complicated they are? So every patient generates the same per diem. That depends on where they are in their hospice course. So after the first, right. So every patient who comes in on every patient on day one it makes the same uh, per diem as every other patient on their day one. And once you get to 180 days, then the hospice is reimbursed at a different rate. So all the patients who are on that day number are reimbursed at a different rate. So there's no difference. There's no reimbursement based on acuity. The only thing that I would say may come under that is that in the last couple of years, there was um, a change to the plan where patients in their last seven days of life, there was this bump up. So in the last seven days of life, patients usually see more visits 
from their nurses, from their social workers, from their chaplains, the aides, as that patient is transitioning and as they're moving towards end of life. And so when you start to see that spurt of visits start to pile up and increase for that patient, sometimes multiple nurse visits a day to manage those symptoms, there was an allotment that was added on to those per diem days in those last seven days if that patient was experiencing um, increased visits. So is that like a retroactive thing that if there's a lot of visits and then the patient passes, then retroactively you say, hey, we need That's to be paid correct. more? I see. Yeah, that was, that was part of the discharge form. And you indicate how many visits they received um, from the different disciplines in those last seven days. Can you give us a rough idea of what is the per diem for a hospice patient? It really depends on where you are because it's based on locality. So in Northern Virginia, Amy, what what were we it was doing? About was one eighty five, and it ranged. So the funny thing is, is that so Part B and Part A Medicare are not managed the same way under Medicare. They have different like MACs or people who oversee the administrative side. So what is for Part B in terms of sort of collecting and billing and assignment of of dollars is very different than if you were looking at Part A and like. So Northern Virginia is not in the same bucket as, let's say, Montgomery County or the District of Columbia or Frederick County. In fact, Montgomery County is actually in the same bucket as Frederick County. And thus, because of some weird thing within Medicare, gets co- collects a lower amount per day, like somewhere between 155 and 175. And I'm sure somebody will be like, no, it's one, you know, 76. But, you know, it's lower than Northern Virginia. Northern Virginia yeah. is collecting a higher per diem. So basically, just just to just to continue to sort of elaborate on this, yeah. it it actually really forces me to have to ask Kathy about a couple of things. Number one is not all hospice is not all hospice care is the same. We actually sort of touched mm-hmm. upon that in terms of what end of life could look like in terms <clears throat> of resource utilization. But there are numerous different sort of resource levels of hospice. In fact. We all talk about hospice and we think of hospice as hospice providers as in-home hospice. Sort of most people, you know, somewhere between 60 and 90 percent will receive almost 100 percent of their hospice care in their home. People, Mm -hmm. hospice is not a place. I mean, honestly, Alex, this is just a little reflection. When I was an ER doctor, I just thought that hospice was like a place, like it's like it was like real. hospital yeah. misspelled. It was like a misspelled. I was like, oh, you meant to be a hospital. Like I couldn't. Well, I not only understand <laughs> what is hospice. It's a place, right? Did well, not, not realize that hospice is like a state of being. It's like, ooh, I'm in hospice, but it's it's just a, it's just a billing mechanism within Medicare. You're just a new. It's a new way to bill. Not only are most doctors convinced that hospice is a place because that's all they've ever been told, but I knew it had to be in Silver Spring, <laughs> right? Like it just like, Why, like it just feels like that's where hospice. Die yeah. is Silver yes. Spring. Like, oh my God. sorry, Silver Spring, please don't sue us. <laughs> Uh, yes, hospice is for most patients. Okay, so just one clarification then. Since most people think that it is a place, if it's not, I know, but if a patient actually needs, um, I have to go above you. I have to go above your pay grade right now. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I can't because so if most people are receiving hospice care at home, there are levels of care that will get you Mm -hmm. to that place, Alex. Like you could go and stay in the hospice place if 
you have certain specific needs. Kathy, take it. Why would you need in <laughs> general in <laughs> So there are actually three levels of hospice Thank care. Thank you. The first is regular hospice. That's regular uh, wherever a person calls home, that can be your home, that can be their home. Sometimes people go and stay with, with children or with siblings to have the living. end of life. Assisted wherever living. Wherever it is. Assisted yeah. livings, all of that. Wherever a person is comfortable, wherever they call home, that can be the hospice. And all those staff and all that, the, the disciplines will come to that place to give that person care. And that assumes that the person is, their symptoms are managed that they are comfortable, that all of the needs that they have can be adequately met in that space with those caregivers around them. So if that person, however, starts to have, or, or not, or always has, symptoms that are, are difficult to manage in the home, uh, perhaps they require an hourly or every 30-minute medication for some of the symptoms we see are maybe seizures or just constant vomiting or pain that just can't be controlled, symptoms that are really, you know, off the charts, then we can place that person in what we call general inpatient. And that has to go with a facility that the hospice agency has contracted with in the past. And they, they work with that facility to get a bed and that patient can go stay in that bed, in that facility. Now, now general inpatient, which is abbreviated GIP, is meant to be 24, 48, 72 hours uh, generally so that the symptoms can be brought under control by professional staff. So the, the nurses in that facility who are there, who are able to give the medications, who are able to call the hospice physician or the hospice nurses to titrate and change those orders as needed based on the symptoms to get that patient under control. And then ideally that patient is able to then go back to the place where they had been. Similarly, we have another level of care that's called continuous care. And continuous care is kind of like GIP, general inpatient, in the home. And we will put staff in the home around the clock in order to be able to get those symptoms under control. Again, it's not meant to be more than 24, 48, 72 hours at most in order to get those things under control. Now, I think when we talk about continuous care and when in the past, when I have said the words, we'll put staff in your home around the clock, a lot of times families or groups that I'm talking to, their ears will shut off and that's all they heard. And then yeah, hospice. Like, yeah, like exactly. Like, like the, the hospice angels have flown, right? Like, right. oh my God, this is exactly what I wanted, but dot, dot, dot. So there's, there's some sort of societal expectation that when somebody enters hospice, that suddenly the whole hospice team moves into their home there <laughs> for them around the clock, that suddenly you are, you know, given a person who will be there forever to care for you around the clock. And so one of the most shocking things that people learn about hospice is that that isn't happening, that this isn't putting a caregiver in your home and that our goal is to make sure you have a caregiver, a neighbor, a friend, a child, a sibling, a spouse, someone who is able, willing and able to be taught what the symptoms are, how, when to call for help, what to give for this, what to give for that, and teach them about how to care for their loved one in the home. I think that is usually the most startling thing that people learn about hospice. It's a quality indicator how well, you know, the after someone dies and they receive 
um, let's say, a survey from CMS or from the hospice themselves, that is one of the quality criteria is how well did your team teach you? Because you, everybody who is in the family becomes essentially, or, or the staff in an assisted living becomes a teachable caregiver. That's a mm -hmm. key word, teachable caregiver. And as, an, and as an administrator, we would be able to measure how well our patients were being and caregivers were being taught by the number of calls that we would get after hours. And so to be able to look at those calls and say, why are people calling to get medications reordered at six o'clock at night? Why are people calling to ask which medication do I give for this or that? And that's not to say that, that you know, people can't gloss over when the nurse is there because there's a lot of information coming and they don't remember it. But you can start to trend and track and see, you know, I, maybe that, that particular nurse and maybe that particular team member is not giving all the great information while they're there because people are still calling for supplemental information on the regular. So it's, it's a good way to measure how your team is educating as well. When a hospice patient is in inpatient status or in the GIP or the other level, the, one of the two higher levels above the regular home hospice, does the per diem increase or it's the same? Yeah, yeah significantly um, was, because that was the exception right that we were trying to yeah. talk about which is the per diem goes up but actually most hospices and kathy they, they lose money on the per right. diem once you start going to the higher levels of care because it doesn't really go one-to-one -one with the actual resources many hospices use kath right like a an lpn to provide the the around the clock in-home care and then once you go to gip hospice if you've contracted with somebody it often is just a complete and total wash, meaning like mm -hmm. you might make 800 bucks a 24 hour period for having GIP care, but almost all of that goes to paying for the contracted rate that you've gone to exactly. for that patient. So in essence, you make no money on the days that the patients in GIP care. So it's all about keeping still... them in, in, in the home. hundred percent. Yes. Keeping yeah. them in their home. That's right. That is correct. Because yeah. while that person's still in GIP, you still are sending your staff in to see them, but your nurse still has to go in to see them. So you're still, you know, having that nurse visit happen, even though there's a facility full of nurses there, your staff is required to still be there. And the other, the other interesting feature too, is that it goes on eight hour segments. So if that patient is in the facility for eight hours or more, then you have to pay the daily rate. That's so we're, so if the person is in a GIP bed from midnight to 7 a.m., then you don't get the GIP rate from Medicare for that rate for that day, even though they were there, even though you still have to pay the facility. So if the person passed away before eight hours in the day, you'd still have to you would, wouldn't count as a GIP day. Yeah, the, the hospice is completely at risk. Like they have no control if the patient is going to die within those first eight hours. But if the patient dies before that eight hours, you actually do not receive the GIP care, even though GIP care rate, even though you've been providing GIP level care. Talk to me, guys, before we go more into the weeds, kind of about the industry. Uh, are there like national players in hospice or is it more mostly mom and pop shops? And kind of talk to me about that. It really depends on where in the country you are. 
there are big players, there are big organizations, United Healthcare, all have, you know, a lot of times the big hospitals in the area will have visiting nurse associations that have hospices associated with them. What's really interesting, I think, in the industry is where you can't get hospice or where you have challenges getting hospice. And those are in the more rural areas because those nurses and those organizations have much more mileage and, and square footage to be able to cover where we live in a very population dense area. There's lots of patients. There's lots of people who have the skill set to be able to work in a hospice and to make those visits. And then getting around to see them during the day or, or even in the evening is you know, a manageable task. But when you go out 100 miles from Northern Virginia and you're out in the mountains, there's one hospice agency that services a lot of that area. And it is a lot of area. Um, so a, a, a late night call could be you know, several, you know, 30, 40, 50 miles um, in the dark down a road that's not paved to, uh, you know, so you're dealing with an entirely different demographic. And so hospice in populous areas is not, is not too much of a challenge. I mean, there are challenges, but not compared to the challenges of, of people who live in more rural areas being able to access hospice care. And I think that's where people start to talk more about hospice as a place because we would see maybe places setting up what they call a hospice house, where they would maybe be able to bring patients in from more rural places to be in a, a kind of a, a miniature facility of sorts where people are getting hospice care in a, in a single place. So I'm going to add on to that. So just to, back to what Alex asked a little bit in terms of the industry itself. So there's a huge difference between what's going on in Virginia than what's going on in Maryland. Virginia is not a certificate of need state. Maryland is a certificate of need state. What does that mean? It means that in Maryland, you actually have to apply to become a hospice in a county by county way where the state has already decided how many hospices have actually can actually serve a specific county. And it's based on population. So it's kind of like the medallion of taxi cabs in New York City. There's only a certain number of these that can be issued for any given county, and they're like gold. People wait around to be like, ooh, I wonder if they're going to go south, and then they like grab up their certificate of need, and they're they're sold for millions and millions of dollars. Really? Yeah. So mm -hmm. people are sitting around waiting for these certificates of need to open up because hospice in and of itself is a can be a fairly profitable business if you um look at it in terms of what is the bare minimum I can provide? What is the bare minimum amount of services that I can put in there? What does the actual regulation say? Oh, if I just do exactly what the regs say and kind of do it without heart, you actually can kind of go print money in the back of the office because it doesn't say that RNs have to do all the visits. It actually says LPNs can do a lot of the visits, but a lot of hospices are like, we're never going to do it with LPNs. We're going to do it with RNs because that's the spirit in which we wish to do this. There's also a huge issue within the uh, industry as you know, for-profit, not-for-profit. And, and one of the things that's interesting is that the not-for-profits often do a lot of fundraising, so then they can provide extra services. There's some hospices in the area that actually will say, oh, you, you need blood transfusions? They'll have enough money to say, oh, we can do blood transfusions in the home, even though hospice benefit doesn't pay for that. They will provide services that make almost no sense to a for-profit hospice to do, like transporting people to continue dialysis. All sorts of stuff can happen while you're on hospice, depending upon which hospice you choose, because the industry is, A, comprised of 
for-profit and not-for-profit. And B, some of these giant like national companies will provide different other types of benefits. I have now worked for several hospices. Some of them do not provide any continuous care whatsoever. Like I didn't even know what continuous care until I had worked at 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 one specific hospice. I didn't that was just not a level of care that was ever utilized in one of the hospices that I had worked for. And then there was another hospice that used used GIP care all the time because they were affiliated with a hospital. So because they were affiliated with a hospital, it's really easy to transfer patients from inpatient hospital to GIP hospice. So you know, and then there's places that actually have built this beautiful hospice house and, you know, they, it, it, it like it's super cachet and it sounds really, you know, great for families. Oh, great. There's this beautiful inpatient hospice, not realizing that like less than one percent of all the patients will ever end up receiving care there. And so just so to, to give you a perspective in Montgomery County, there are several for profit hospices that are large national companies that are associated with either manor care or that are themselves sort of standalone giant publicly traded hospice agencies. And then there's a lot of nonprofits. So it actually varies. And then in the state of Virginia, where there is no certificate of need, you could literally say, oh, I think I'm going to start a hospice. Hmm, We've done that. And then just pretty much start a hospice, (laughs) assuming that, you know, there's not going to be any stark laws about internal internal referrals and saying, oh, great, we have this whole spectrum of care. We've got, maybe we've got a home health agency that could feed into a hospice, or we've got a, a private a private duty agency that could feed into the hospice. So there's a lot of ways of looking at this. I think I've spoken enough. That's all I have to say about that. So if somebody starts a hospice and you're getting this per diem, is it basically, is it mostly up to you internally how you function? Like if you want to do most of the care virtually, is that up to you? Virtual? Oh, COVID style, but not in reality. No, you can't do virtual care in hospice except for COVID style. Like Meaning that you can't like like you shouldn't or you're not allowed to or you're supposed to you have to make I think a nurse has to make a visit once every ten days. So we usually make a weekly visit or based on the patient's need because it, you know what you do in the moment is is one thing, but when you when Medicare comes in to do their credentialing visits when they come back to do their 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 checks they're looking back at your charts and they're saying, well, you've been charting that this patient had all these symptoms, but I don't see that you ever sent a nurse out. Mm -hmm. So then that starts to look at the quality of service that you've been providing to these patients. But they also have statistics. They want you to be able to meet certain, how, what percentage of your patients ended up in GIP? How many of your patients ended up receiving continuous care? So you can make the argument that we manage our patients' symptoms very well and very proactively so that we didn't have to use those services, but your documentation better show that in the end, because they're going to say, well, why did 75% of your patients go to GIP or why did, you know, these kind of crazy numbers. So you want to be able to manage, you know, why your patients are in the level of care that they're in and be able to justify that with the documentation um, to show that you're, you're doing the work that you should be doing when you're taking those Medicare dollars. So if I'm a family member or a geriatric care manager or physician, and I need to refer, you know, somebody to hospice, how do I choose? What questions should I be asking? How do I know who's high quality, who's low quality? I think there are a lot of ways to do that. You know, as a consumer, you can always go to Google and look at the reviews, see what people have put. I hate to say that. Having having worked in hospice, I would, you know, Ooh, people I'm would. I like suddenly like got very sick to my stomach when you said that. I know. Google I, know. I like suddenly just was like. <gasps> I was trying to be like, very. Those are so reliable. I, you know, no, I know. Because in the emergency. 
In the emergency medicine world, like in my career, I, I, I calculated, I estimated that I must have taken care of at least, I don't know, 30,000 patients or something like that. And I have like four reviews on Google and it's like four people who were upset with something that happened in the ER, you know, that wasn't even <laughs> under my control. So like, I hate that. Is there some better way? <laughs> well, there are a couple of other ways too, thank God. You know, you can ask around if you are a, a family member Usually geriatric care managers, they know, they know a lot of the, a lot of them have come out of the post-acute space in some way and they know the players and they know the places that they like. A lot of times they have friends, certain places, and they can feel comfortable about recommending their patients to those places. There are, because Medicare does come out, they do give stars like a restaurant, like Michelin yeah. stars to these agencies. And you can look that up online and see how each agency was ranked under the, the, qualifications that they were ranked under and the different scoring that they got. And that can give you an idea. Oh, this agency is, is two and a half stars and this one is four stars. And that can give you a clue as well about, about those agencies. But when you're a patient or a loved one, you can talk to the community that you're in, your church community, your, you know, your work community and ask, you know, has anybody used a hospice agency? What did you think? Some people will say, oh gosh, I used this one and it was awful. And why? Um, or this place was so great. You know, you've got all Facebook you can go on to. I know there are tons of message boards where people kind of send out these little, you know, feelers to find out yeah. about that. But another really great way is to just, I mean, nobody opens a phone book anymore, but open a phone book and call them and, and ask questions. Ask about how many patients they have on their census. Ask about whether or not they've been credentialed, if they've received certifications above and beyond the Medicare certification. You can what ask, are some of those certifications that folks should ask about? So there, the one that certifies for home health communities and hospice is called CHAP. Acronyms are my kryptonite, so I can't ever remember what it stands for. But it's a, an agency that comes out and they are, it's above and beyond Medicare. So, so meeting Medicare regulations is one thing. But if you'd like to be certified by CHAP, you need to really go above and beyond. And they have metrics of excellence that you meet in order to receive that certification. And so that's, that's CHAP as in C-H-A-P? Yes, it is. CHAP certification. So that's, so other, other than asking about the size, so do you think a, a large paid patient census is a good sign or a bad sign? It depends. It depends on, on the ratio of the nurses, how many patients are, are assigned to each nurse. You can ask about what their on-call situation is. Does the nurse answer the phone or does it go to a call center? How long does it take for somebody to come to you in a crisis in the middle of the night if something's happening? Is that call going to take two hours or is that nurse going to be there in, in 30, 40 minutes? Those, those are questions I think that are important to ask. What about uh, those are those are great, Kathy. What about are 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 any hospice agencies doing new stuff like using software to create like chat groups so that family members can all chat together with maybe a, a representative of the hospice so that they have an easier like group conversations or like is stuff like that going on? That I have not heard of going on. Ding, um, ding, 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 ding. Alex is like, I just, Amy, after this call, can we just talk about our new business idea? <laughs> so no, it seems like, they, yeah, no, go ahead, go ahead. No, I'm just, go ahead, sorry. Sorry. No, 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 uh, that's great. Um, that's not something that, that we'd had before. It's really just old school phone 
to call and you speak to the nurse on call, explain to them what's going on. I think the most high tech that we ever got was to do a FaceTime. In a real emergency, we could get onto FaceTime and help that person before we were able to get to the home to start, you know, um, saying, okay, well, you see here, and this is, you know, the dial on the oxygen machine that we can adjust and, and using that. And, and, wow. and as dinky as that might sound, that's really all you need. A lot of times when families call after hours or anytime they're calling you, they're seeking information, but they're really seeking comfort and they're seeking reassurance. And so sometimes just having an expert on the phone or the nurse on the phone to, in order to let them know that what they're seeing or what they're hearing is normal, giving them instructions on what to do just makes them feel better in the moment. I presume that folks who work in hospice become really good at identifying when it's likely the patient's last day. When you identify something like that, what do you do? Do you send a nurse to the patient's house? Do you notify the family? Like what kind of happens in that, those final moments? And, and Kathy, before you answer, just use the word that he's trying to, he's trying to use a word. He just doesn't know what that word is. What is that Transitioning. Uh, yeah. So transitioning is the, is the term that we're using when, when we really see that person start to move into a phase of actively dying. And transitioning can really happen very, very quickly, or it can kind of happen over you know, a, a period of time. Everybody's different. Everyone does this a little bit differently. But me as a hospice nurse, I want to be very communicative with the family. Uh, and I want to let them know what I'm seeing. And I never would say something like, give give a precise time estimate because people will really try to hold you to that. And that's a really, that's dangerous territory to get into. So usually I would say that this, you know, it seems as if your loved one has hours to days or days to weeks. Those kinds of estimates are, are I think, are safer to work with, but it starts letting people get their mind around what's happening. And then basically it's symptom management. If that person is comfortable and they're transitioning comfortably, family understands what's happening, family is at ease, patient is at ease. There's no need to, you know, send in the cavalry to that patient's house unless there's something that needs to be managed in that. You know, you may ask the nurse to go out more frequently every day, maybe just to check on the patient and check on the family, but there's no need to, you know, get crazy at the end. Got it. I don't know what's Amy's having a seizure there, it seems. Are you all right? I aspirated my coffee. I'm all uh, good. Uh, <laughs> do you need a nurse? <laughs> I mean, all right. We, this could go really south quick. So I'm just going to ask a quick question. Kathy, in your experience, what are the types of symptoms that when somebody is transitioning, do they have? Uh, again, it's so hard to say in general, but well, in general, yes. People's breathing changes their vital signs start to change. By that, I mean they'll either be trending one way or the other. So either breathing starts to really slow. Sometimes you can hear, everyone loves to call it the death rattle because that's the, you know, the word that everybody knows, but you hear that kind of congestion in the, in the throat when they're breathing. Or breathing become, can become very rapid as well. Or we're really seeing vital signs on one side of the spectrum or the other. Heart rate and blood pressure are going you know, in one direction, and it's trending in that direction, up or down. And the patient may also start to be a little bit more withdrawn. They may not be needing uh, or asking for food or drink. 
And that, I think, is one of the most distressing things for families because they may be comfortable, they're breathing all right, they don't seem to be in any pain, but when they stop being able to eat and drink or stop asking for it or when they put the straw in the mouth and the patient doesn't sip, that is a lot of times what really upsets the family because I think that's when when the, the reality of the situation starts to set in for people. And we start to have conversations about when those nutritional needs start to decline because that patient doesn't doesn't need that nutrition anymore. Their body doesn't need that fuel anymore because the body is slowly starting to shut down. Does hospice pay for or help arrange for nutrition? Well, that's a tricky question. So the, the big answer is no, but there are lots of little yeses around the sides. We, when it, when a patient is no longer able to eat or drink on their own, that's a, that is that could be part of the terminal diagnosis. That could be part of the the disease process for them. If we start to introduce intravenous fluid or or intravenous feeding, or a patient has a G tube in their stomach where they receive tube feedings in their stomach, it's it's really it's kind of a conversation about whether or not that is a natural uh, death or if that is artificially prolonging life. So it's, that's, that becomes a different kind of conversation. Some people can talk about whether or not a person feeling uh, a tube feeding is, is comfort. Are you providing them comfort with that, it's it's a it's a whole There's other latitude. conversation. There's a lot yeah, of yeah. latitude in all of this, and actually, it it is often a big question mark when somebody comes onto hospice and they have a G tube, and you know that the only reason that they're still with us is because the G tube feedings continue because they they can't they're let's just say they are es- essentially non communicative, non verbal. And the only thing that's keeping them going is the is the G tube feedings. There are people like that who stay on hospice for prolonged periods of time, but it becomes part of the dialogue of would your loved one would have wanted this? Was this part of how they would have wanted to live? I mean, essentially, you are giving them you know twelve hundred calories, fifteen hundred calories a day through a tube in their stomach, but they don't communicate with you. All they do has have inputs and outputs, and and that is that is actually mm-hmm. a really difficult thing for a lot of staff members philosophically. You know, if if the idea is when you come onto hospice, there's a there's sort of a a broad view of like what is, you know, <laughs> what is supportive care and what is not supportive care, and and it becomes a conversation, and 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 so there is a broad spectrum, Alex, of like what is appropriate and what is not, and and then of course back to the idea of like what is a hospice willing to pay for, you know, I think I think that that's that's also part of that conversation. There, it's not like set hard and rule hard and fast, like. Alex and I have talked a lot about like, why doesn't Medicare just tell us exactly what they want us to do? Tell us exactly what the rules are. Why do they make us guess and make all sorts of judgment calls and then later find out that we made the wrong decision and blah, blah, blah. This is another one of those two where if they just said we will or we will not pay for it, it actually mm-hmm. would help to some degree. But it doesn't give clinicians the latitude sometimes uh, to, to help make some of those decisions. Uh- I hate to take it in a cynical angle or a purely business no, you don't. angle. No, you don't. no, no actually, I, okay, you're right. But no, I just, I, I, I always want to understand the flow of the dollar because that usually explains people's behavior, I'd say. So from the perspective of a hospice, would it not make more sense to continue to provide the G-tube feedings because it's keeping another patient alive that generates a per diem for you? 
or my what your hospice census is if you want to continue the cynicism i mean if you're really trying to keep your hospice census up and you're like cha-ching 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 is that what you're trying to say yeah or or but i guess so you're not no one's in there going so listen um what we're going to tell you is do not stop the tube feedings is that you know no i i I, listen i've never worked in a hospice i don't know what's going on in the in the the operations side like are are people even thinking like that or is it so sure that like nobody even thinks about the dollar or what you you sure you certainly could do that and and from a purely uh mechanical idea having those kinds of patients would not be a bad thing why because you know they're stable for all intents and purposes they're stable all you're doing is providing this this feeding to them and the, someone will go in and bathe everything becomes very routine then right the nurse comes in the nurse checks them nothing's changed the aide comes in gives them a bath they're not going to be using your social worker very much they're not going to be using your chaplain very much where i think you're going to run into the problem is around recertification So at the end of whatever certification period you brought that patient onto, and I know you've talked in in previous um, episodes about these certification periods, you need to be able to show at the end of six months that this patient is still hospice appropriate. And it can't be a plateaued hospice experience. This patient has to have shown some decline somewhere. If they came in, as, as Amy said, not speaking, not communicative, not moving, then there's nowhere to show that they've had loss cognitively, right? And if they haven't lost any weight because you're continuing to put the same 12 or 1500 calories in them, you know, every day, then they haven't lost, you know, weight. Nutritional. There's no nutritional nutritional. decline. So you're going to have a hard time if you have 30 tube feeding patients showing that they are still hospice appropriate through that decline. Because if that patient is on a tube feeding and that's the only thing really keeping them alive, then over time, there will be places where you're going to see that body start to, to decline. Yes, but it, it may not occur in in the time frame that you are looking to recertify them in. So that's, it's that's, a good, that's an excellent point. That's actually so well stated. So, okay, that's fascinating for me. I, I don't fully understand. No, so but, in order but, to mean, so in order to recertify the patient for hospice status, there must be a decline of something. Correct. That's correct. That's so, correct. So, just, yeah. Well, so, Kathy, I was just going to say to remind us that the certifications come in 90, 90, 60, 60, 60, 60, 60. That's, That's correct. like the 90 days, 90 days, 60, 60. And at the end of the second certification period, you start requiring face to face visits. But even after the end of the first one, you have to be able to demonstrate nutritional, cognitive, or functional decline. Mm-hmm. Or else you're out of hospice. So that's so weird because if you're providing really great care, maybe you're providing enough care to keep that patient Correct. kind of stable. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like, it feels like the arrows are pointing opposite each other that's in terms correct. of what you're incentivized yeah. versus what's best for the patient. That's horrible. Yeah. So, so, so you're really, so, so like from a purely, again, business cynical view, like you're, you, you, what you should be aiming to do is like maybe 90% of what's required to keep the patient stable because you, you, you almost want them from a business perspective to decline so that they can stay your patient. You're like, not, it's not like an IDT. You're like, whoa, stop with the, all the good care here. That's a terrible idea. But, you know, people are super mission driven. So yeah. I think it's sort of no, I no, I know every hospice person I've ever met is like an angel on this earth. They're amazing, but I'm just trying to understand the business and the mechanics of this. It's so weird. Yeah, it's a it's a really it's a really weird 
line to walk because while you want to provide this patient with such great care and make sure that they're comfortable, when you do that so well, you lose a lot of the assessment data that, that you can use to, to, to move them into another certification period. Now, that's not to say that's all the time. Some of these patients will, will most of these patients will continue to decline despite that care, but, but it's, that care is what's keeping them comfortable through that decline. So when patients, let's take the tube feeding patients out of it, and that's why there's, the tube feeding patients are such a gray area because you know with those tube feeding patients, you're going to be having conversations with families because there's a reason they put that tube, that, that G-tube in to begin with. So you're going to have to be having conversations around, you know, what are we going to allow for natural death and what does that look like? And then inevitably you get into the conversation of, do you just want my patient to starve to death? Is that what you're trying to do? You, you, you inevitably have that conversation. Well, they're just going to starve to death. And so you start having those conversations. But if we take the tube feeding patients out of it and we talk about just your, your classic run-of-the-mill hospice patient, those patients are going to continue to lose weight. They're going to continue to show cognitive decline. You know, they're losing words or they're becoming, they're sleeping much more during the day. And those are things that you're going to be documenting to show that decline so that when the face-to-face with the physician comes up again, you can say, look, you know, at the last certification period, you know, Mrs. Smith was, was awake and talking and getting out of bed and toileting herself. But when I went over the last couple of weeks and now that I've gone to see her, you know, she's in bed 18 to 22 hours out of the day. She doesn't stay awake during meals. She went from three meals down to one meal that she just picks at. Those are the features that you're looking at to prove that decline. Are there, and you're really telling a story. Are there like recommended or official scoring mechanisms to track this sort of decline? Or is it kind of ad lib as you just described? You know, you're really speaking to whatever their terminal diagnosis was. And you can add other features too. But if somebody comes in with congestive heart failure, there are features that you're looking at that are they're showing that the congestive heart failure is really starting to take over. If you have a patient who's on work for a cancer diagnosis, there are features around that and measurements and scoring that would that would speak to that. And that's what you're really showing is that you know, due to this diagnosis, this patient is experiencing these declines. And, and like I said, other things may come into the picture as well that aren't necessarily associated as a direct line to that diagnosis, because there's probably a lot of comorbidities that are, that are working in this, in this factor as well. And Alex, I wanted to add to that and then push it back to Kathy for one really clinical granular thing. But a lot of this is very, it's not subjective, but it's like objectively subjective. Like mm-hmm. they seem to be declining is is not okay, but like th- it is, oh, you know, they're only eating 30% of their meal or, you know, that is like a, a weird, it's sort of guesstimations. A lot of yeah. guesstimations sort of do do impart um, onto, onto the judgment. But Kathy, can you speak a little bit to mean arm circumference as a sort of a across the board way of measuring nutritional decline? Yeah, so mean arm circumference is something that we try to do almost at every visit, but definitely around the certification visits. And it's measuring, I'm gesturing for those who can't see, around the middle part of the bicep, on, on, usually on the right arm. But if you're going to pick an arm, make it be the same arm. And you measure that. And, and as a person loses weight, you can start to notice that measurement. And people will say, well, why are you measuring that? Put them on a scale. Well, when you're at home, 
we don't have bed scales. And when you're at home, a patient who's bed bound is not very easy to get up onto uh, your slick little bathroom scale that you stand up on. So this is a way that we can show through measurement that a patient's losing weight. But in, in its most extreme, people can be down to really skeletal conditions and that, that number's that not going to change because yeah. there's, yeah. there's nothing yeah. there to them anymore. Yeah. I mean, you can comment on temporal wasting. I mean, there's all sorts of ways of documenting right. nutritional decline, but MAC is sort of a, a very nice, quote unquote, objective one, even though it has a huge subjective component, because it mm -hmm. may not be the same person doing it every time, but it might, and they may not have put it in the exact same place, but they might, and they may have, you know, made the little tape measure a little tighter, but they might not have. So there, there is some variability right. there, but it is an objective, subjective thing. Who is making the recertification assessment? Does it have to be a like a qualified healthcare practitioner, like a physician, or can it be a hospice nurse? It's kind of there. It's the two together. So because the nurse has been out making those weekly visits, they're the one who usually has all that assessment data and brings it to the physician, and usually will make that face-to-face -face visit with the physician and say, "What you're seeing now is this. Let me tell you about how it has been. You know how it was a week ago, a month ago, two months ago, and that helps the physician write up that recertification statement based on what they're seeing in that moment, but also based on you know, what the documentation has been up to that point. So, but You're, no, 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 but hold on, Alex, I want to clarify. This is not the, this is not the physician who has recommended hospice. This has to be the medical director that is an correct. employee of the hospice who sits in the biweekly IDT meetings is actually making that assessment. So a hospice by just definition has to have a medical director and that mm -hmm. medical director ultimately makes the final decision for whether or not somebody gets recertified on a on a certification period by certification period basis it's not the nurse is not making that decision nor is the quote unquote mm -hmm. primary care doctor and i'm using my little fingers here because you know sometimes the primary care doctor does not take any responsibility for that patient once they come onto the hospice service so really the it's really completely up to the hospice to decide within the Medicare regs for each specific terminal diagnosis as to whether or not somebody gets quote unquote recertified on a on a certification period by certification period basis. Okay. So that was that that was actually my next question like typically when patients enter hospice are they usually giving up their relationship with their primary care doctor and when you say the face to face uh, with the physician does that mean the hospice medical director is driving around mostly to like each person's house to do the actual physical face-to-face -to, -face to recertify them? So right. the answer to your question is, depends on the size of your hospice, but if you have a small hospice and your hospice medical director is the only person who is either an NP or a MD on staff, then the answer to your question is, yep. If you are more robust and have a you know a larger hospice and can employ a nurse practitioner and must employ that nurse practitioner, like they must be employed by the hospice, they can make those face-to-face -face visits. PAs do not have, sorry, physician assistants do not have the ability to do that under the hospice benefit at this point. Earlier, I, I don't know if you misspoke, Amy, you, you said a nurse could be the medical director? No, a nurse practitioner nurse cannot practice. be a medical director, but they can mm -hmm. do face-to-face -face visits. Oh, mm -hmm. I a see. nurse practice. So the people who can do face-to-face -face visits are MDs or NPs, and that has to be done, you know, X amount of time before the next certification period. Blah blah blah. And a medical director can do the face-to-faces, or an NP can do the face-to-faces, but an NP cannot be a medical director of a hospice. Got it. Has 
Medicare relaxed the face-to-face -face rule during COVID-19 to allow it to be done virtually or no? Yes. So a face-to-face -face visit can now be done by an NP or an MD virtually. Yes. I presume that's a temporary relaxation as far as we know. We don't know. It is currently under the COVID-19 emergency stuff. But yeah, we're hoping it will stay like that because it's a very, very time-consuming visit that often has no specific goals other than to kind of like, like if you could just drive by the patient's house for some of them, you just know they're declining because you've been sitting in the IDT meetings, but it does afford the agency a way to like, you know, put, put your face back onto the, you know, the family in the family's sort of, you know, you know, spectrum of, 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 of what they perceive as excellent care and, you know, you, you do a lot of things when you are at that face-to-face -face visit that are not specifically the face-to-face -face visit, but it is, it can be very burdensome, actually. In order to become a hospice patient, must you be in a do not resuscitate status? No, you don't have to be. What, but it, again, it's an opportunity to have a conversation with the family and the patient about what resuscitating this patient would look like honestly and and sometimes graphically what it would look like to try to resuscitate this 95-year-old patient who has, you know, x number of comorbidities and you talk about the realism of that, you know, and what that would go through <clears throat> and if and if, you know, we started CPR on this patient and we called 911 for them to go to the hospital, they'd have to come out of hospice as we spoke about not being able to really double dip those benefits but then what that hospital course would look like. So it's an opportunity for the hospice team to really understand where the family and the patient are in their minds about, about this patient and, and, and what the trajectory for that patient looks like. And it's an opportunity to educate, but no, they don't need to be a DNR for that. If a patient or family member declines to be in DNR status, is that a signal to the hospice that this might be a difficult patient or family or somebody who doesn't really understand the purpose of hospice? Or or can that patient still be like a really good patient, not just clinically, but also business-wise for the practice? You know, it, honestly, it's not going to be that conversation that tells you that this patient is not, the family is not on board. That's not the red flag. Um, that's going to be one of many things when a, when a family is feeling like they have to be in hospice or they've been browbeaten into hospice when really it is the appropriate decision. Some of them kind of come kicking and screaming. Usually it's the family. It's almost never the patient. The family really has a hard time getting their, their mind around hospice and, and allowing for natural death and, and coming to terms with what's happening with their loved one. And it's, and that's what it's about. It's about this grief, this unmet grief that they are, haven't dealt with about the thought of losing this patient. And so it's an opportunity for us to bring in that bevy of, of team members that we have to deal with social work and chaplains to talk to them about, you know, dealing with that grief and understanding what, what's unresolved about them losing this patient. And, and obviously that's, that's not an easy thing to talk about. And it's not a, a light thing to dismiss in a family and in a dynamic, but the DNR is just telling you that you know, that's, it may be a DNR that's been there for a long time. And when you sit down with a family and you say, look, when this, this is, this is how it's going to play out. If, if, if your mother's heart stops, would you like us to perform this procedure or call 911 and have people come and perform this, you know, oftentimes very violent and very damaging 
procedure to an older body that's that's already compromised this is what it will look like on the other side you know what do you what do you what would be your goal in her having cpr because you think that it will prolong the days and weeks that you'll have with her well this is what those days and weeks would look like and then people say oh well then i guess you know maybe not or they'll say can we just leave it on and think about it and then as you have them on hospice more often than not people understand and and start to come around to the idea of what's happening with their patient. And honestly, the DNR is sometimes something that's just forgotten about because they understand and they see this, that their loved one is comfortable. They're understanding that this is, you know, not as scary as it seemed at the beginning. They've had a lot of questions answered. They've had a lot of time to kind of come around to it. You know, I think if somebody recorded a real live video of an actual uh, resuscitation attempt in the ER, you know, and blurred out the patient's face, if we, if families saw what actually happens and how in- excruciatingly mm-hmm. painful and messy and bloody these resuscitation attempts are, that video could probably do more to change people's minds than any amount of conversation. I completely agree with you. Absolutely. I mean, I think also um, just, you know, giving people real life data about what the survivability of, you know, Mm -hmm. do you want us to break all of the ribs and sort of essentially harm them on their way to to almost definitive death? Like that, that's sort of the the, the critical piece here is that everyone thinks, well, if they do it, then you're going to survive it. No, no, no. If you do it, you're, I mean, it's fractions, you know. You know, and, and it's not just survivability; it's meaningful survivability. Too. Right when there was right. when when their when their baseline state may have been really compromised. Alex, yeah. I want to go back to some of the other sort of pain points that families not only just have around you know DNR and 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 you know, most pulse that type of stuff, but the other things that are often hard for families to accept about accepting hospice include. So you're you know people will say so you're saying I can't go back to the hospital. So you're saying, I can't go back to the hospital. I mean, that's really semantics. Well, of course, you can always call 911 and go back to the hospital. You will just not be able to be on hospice at that time because you can't be double dipping. So there's that. The second thing is, well, what about all of my expensive medications that I'm taking for X, Y, and Z? Mm -hmm. Are you going to take those away from me? And so I'm going to tell you there are some rules and laws coming down the pike in in 2020, 2021 that are going to speak a little bit to this. But as Kathy and I know, one of the issues about coming onto hospice is that there have to be choices because hospice is a Part A benefit. And as part of the Part A benefit, Medicare insists that we cover all medications as they relate to symptom management and for taking care of somebody in their for their terminal diagnosis. There's always questions that come up about insulin for diabetes and, and, you know, thyroid medication and stuff like that. But there's often very expensive medications that people have been on for years and years that do not make sense for the hospice to cover under the Medicare Part A benefit. And so depending upon what they are, Part D as in dog may pick them up, but they also may be having to pay for parts of it out of pocket. So that becomes a friction point. And then of course, sort of, oh, well, if I get dehydrated, you'll come in and put IV fluids in. But there's a lot of data to suggest that that Mm -hmm. actually can cause more pain and suffering at end of life than it does um, provide the family with being like, well, at least she didn't starve or, you know, dehydrate to death. So I would say like, those are the big ones is DNR status. I can't go back to the hospital. That's a really expensive medication. And then IV fluids, those kind of keep coming up as, as big sort of friction points for people being willing to accept hospice. And it's all about communication 
And it's all about making sure that your nurses feel able to have those conversations. So as an ER doctor, my most common encounter with hospice patients, I believe, would be trauma related. Mm -hmm. You know, a hospice patient is a, you know, colon cancer patient and they're dying and they have a trip and fall and now they have a hip dislocation or a massive gash and they just need the ER doctor to like pop the hip back in or, or, you know, sew up this huge gash. Talk to me about that. Like how often does something like that happen? How big of a problem is that? And you actually have to, I guess, switch them out of hospice status to deal with that acute issue. What are your thoughts? I mean, that, that depends too. And that depends on the hospice operations too, because that's dollars as well. You know, we tell patients, you know, it's not that we don't want you to call 911. It's that we'd like to be part of the conversation because what you may call 911 for, we may be able to come out to the house and help you with without you know, setting off all the bells and whistles of a, of a 911 ER visit. So if somebody has had a trip and fall and there has been some sort of trauma, a broken arm, a broken hip, some sort of fracture, you know, of course we want to get that set. We want to have, we want to make sure that patient is comfortable and, you know, getting that care that they need. But if, it, if it's going to involve, you know, a hip surgery, then we probably want to put them out of hospice in order for them to get that care if that's how they'd like. Now, some families will say, I really don't think that mom or dad is going to really do well going on. And, and a lot of surgeons maybe won't even touch that patient because that patient may be so, you know, so, so beyond an, a safe place to be able to endure a surgery like a, you know, a hip replacement or a, a, a fracture uh, reduction. And so we would have the hip set and maybe we've had patients be in traction at home so that they're comfortable. We've done that before. It's just you, every situation is different and, and truly every patient comes in with a new combination of questions and what ifs and, and you just kind of deal with those as you come because you have to look at that whole patient independently and all of their you know, pros and cons to figure out how to provide them the best care. What are the most common reasons that a patient leaves hospice status? Is it trauma related or is it something else? I would say it's not trauma related. The number of times that we've seen true trauma with a fracture or some something like that that can't be managed at home. If somebody falls and has a gash, a lot of times we can handle that at home, um, doing wound care and 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 something like that. The the reasons we see people leave hospice when they're not being recertified because they're not declining, uh, but the when we see people leaving hospice because honestly they probably weren't in totally on board with hospice to begin with. So at the first sign of a crisis in terms of that patient is starting to have shortness of breath mm. or that patient is having pain or maybe they've stopped eating, something so there's been some change in the patient's condition that the family member has gotten mm. scared. And I they see. think maybe, you know, this is something that they can fix that we can go to the emergency room. So we'll get those phone calls Half the time you can say to the patient, all right, well, let's try this medication to help with the shortness of breath, or let's put some oxygen on and I'm on my way and I'll be there and we'll assess when I get there. The other half of the patients say, the ambulance is here. We're taking them to the hospital. Can you meet us there? Mm -hmm. And then you, you deal with that as you get there. But I most see. of the time I would say, Amy, would you agree? It's, it's mostly a yeah, family yeah. member feeling scared. Yep. 
Yep. I mean, I think that, you know, when you look at assisted livings, oftentimes it's failure of the staff to understand if a patient's Mm -hmm. on hospice, forgetting that they're on hospice. They are panicking. They don't want to be held responsible, Mm. not understanding how to deliver the medications. I mean, there's a there's a huge skill set in assisted livings, like small group homes are often different than large group homes in terms of how they handle hospice, because, you know, in, in a larger assisted living, the hospice nurse who comes in to round on her or his caseload that's in that hospice will have, you know, hospice, hospice, hospice. The patients will be very clearly identified as hospice patients. But I have been in small group homes or even smaller assisted livings where if something happens to the patient, everyone panics and they just call 911 because they don't know what to do. For patients who are living at home for whom their caregiver is primarily their family member, you know, people just worry. They like they suddenly they they question everything about the decisions that they made on hospice sometimes. You know, if there was sort of this question, maybe the maybe one brother was there, maybe the daughter who, you know, wasn't always really on board but was willing to be there to help with bathing and some medication administration. It really varies a lot. I mean, the whole goal is to put the hospice phone number everywhere you possibly can. If in case of emergency, call this number. Hospices are available 24-7 and they really do replace pretty much every other form of care that that patient was receiving up until then. Mm-hmm. You know, so they become they become a resource manager. You know, they they basically are the front door to to healthcare, and that's what you want to encourage from your your you know an understanding of from your patients. I had another question. I okay, okay, <laughs> okay. I know your next question was when. I guess the next question is why are physicians not understanding hospice? Why do primary care doctors, oncologists, cardiologists, pulmonologists, all the ologists, why are they not referring to hospice earlier? Why are we seeing so many less than seven day admissions? Why do we see less than 14 days? Why isn't, why aren't people able to take advantage of the hospice benefit earlier? I know why. Question, Alex. That's such a great question, Alex. I just want to- Because they haven't heard, listened to our podcast yet. Well, I- <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, having been an ER doctor and then having been this sort of version of a primary care doctor in the form of a house call doctor, I'm sort of floored at what either miss or non-information is out there. As an example, most primary care doctors do not realize that if you put somebody onto a hospice service and they meet the qualifications, you know, they don't have to understand everything about what the terminal diagnoses are. And no one's going to come back to them and do a money grab from them if they refer to hospice. There's this fear. I'm not signing that piece of paper. No, oh, no, oh, I'm not, mm -mm, no. Like, I'm not sure what the fear is on the part of primary care doctors to make that initial referral. Why don't you just make the referral and let the hospice agency decide if that patient qualifies? Because they're ultimately the ones that have to decide. The medical director and the admissions nurse have to decide, do they meet the qualifications based on a certain terminal diagnosis? If the answer is yes, let the patient decide. The, the, The primary care doctor can also be like, you know what? I actually don't want to be that person's primary care doctor during this hospi- this hospice certification. And oftentimes the hospice medical director will become the primary care doctor for that patient. We don't want that because of course you want to have people continue that relationship and it's really important. But if, you know, Mr. Smith, who's the patient, has met, you know, Dr. You know, Jones one time, 
you know, I could see how Dr. Jones would be like, you know, I don't really, this is not a relationship that I feel is going to be additive to this person's hospice experience. I, well, I, I, I don't understand how a primary care doctor could continue to have a relationship if they can't bill the patient. Well, because, well, that's such a great question because it's not all about the cash money. You know, sometimes it's about Dr. Jones has known Mr. Smith for 20 years. It all makes sense. You know, the only billing code that Dr. Jones could still bill for taking care of Mr. Smith is actually care plan oversight. So if you are somebody who uh, keeps signing the hospice documents month after month because the patient's on hospice, every time you do 31 minutes of signing documents, talking to the hospice nurse, you can bill about $125 a month for the care of that patient. Oh, so oh, there yeah. Is now still it makes money, financial sense. Okay, well, I think most yeah, yeah. doctors probably don't know about. They this. don't know that. Correct. No. So nope. even if the if your patient, uh, let me let's yeah, recap. Let's, so if yeah. your patient transitions to hospice status, yep. Uh, you, the primary care doctor who normally bills Part B Medicare, can Correct. still bill yep. care plan oversight, and your yep. responsibility would be to oversee the care plan and sign what. The, the the rando pieces of paper that go flying their direction, which is like, just as an FYI, <laughs> we had an IDT meeting and here's what we did. And if they do that, then they would be the ones who would be recertifying the patient, not the medical director or no? No, they just, they, it, it's a weird relationship, right? It's, it's all, <laughs> it's so complicated because Kathy and I redesigned our front end paperwork several times to kind of accommodate the weirdness of all of this, which is, if you are a primary care doctor, the relationship you have with the patient on hospice is really weird. It's, hey, do you want to sign their death cert or don't you want to sign their death cert? Do you want to know what's going on with the patient or do you not want to know what's going on with the patient? Will you sign these pieces of paper? Or will you not sign these? None of them are like make or break. It's almost like we're welcoming that person to continue to be part of the conversation, but not to have any, not ultimately to have any decision-making powers. It's really just, hey, FYI, you're the primary care doctor. If you want to be the primary care doctor, that continues to know about this patient, we're going to make you sign some pieces of paper that basically just say, I acknowledge that this is happening. It, if you decide not to sign them, guess what? The medical director will probably sign them anyway. And they will switch the primary care provider to the medical director. It is really just a way of continuing to honor the relationship that that primary care doctor had with that patient. So many doctors just don't want anything to do with it. They don't understand how. You know, oh, there's even one further question, which is, hey, in the middle of the night, do you want us to call you about morphine order changes? There are some doctors that are like, I want to have total control. I want to know everything that's happening. Please don't change morphine or add I mean, I don't know who those crazy people are, but they are they do exist. They want really a lot of control. And then there's some that are like, oh no, no, just call me when the, the patient dies. So there's like a whole menu effect of how that person can continue to have a relationship with that patient. It's, it's really kind of weird. So, but if you continue in any capacity, you agree to continue being that person's primary care doctor, you will get pieces of paper to sign that basically acknowledge that you understand what the care plan is, and then you can bill for care plan oversight if, if you so understand how to do that under Part B. We probably need a separate episode just on care plan <laughs> oversight. Yes, I think I think for doctors, it's there's bananas. two reasons or two or three yeah. reasons they don't do this. One is they just don't know and understand. Number two, so there's this kind of fear of what I don't know and making a mistake and, and, right. and incurring right. a Medicare audit. Yep. And second is difficult 
conversations. They don't want to have difficult conversations with patients' families about, oh. why did you recommend hospice oh. to my mom? You know, screw you, mm -hmm. you bad doctor, you know? Well, yeah, and well, then, that's, what, that's what my Yelp looks like, by the way. <laughs> you want to know what, <laughs> that's what, if you wanted to know what, like, people's Google reviews are, like, Dr. Schiffman recommended hospice, boost, you right. know, like that kind of right. thing. But, but you didn't mention number three, which is EMRs are not set up to manage this billing code. Right. EMRs are not set up to manage any time-based billing. So like you can't just be like, oh, it was a level three visit. Great, nine, nine, blah, blah, blah. But this one's like a G code and it's dependent on an additive amount of, you know, minutes that you spent over the course of a calendar month. And, you know, you and then, but you can't do it if it excludes it. If you're doing chronic care management, you can't do that. Like, it's just. Don't even get me you know. started on that. Okay, okay I sorry. One, I have one last question before I develop a, a deep vein thrombosis in my legs. <laughs> so, so, if a hospice patient or family calls 911 and takes the patient to the ER, and let's say they didn't call hospice, and the hospice finds out like hours later, to what degree can the hospice agency retroactively take the patient off of hospice status in order to not incur the fee of the? 911 and the ER and all that? You know, sometimes we don't find out until the nurse doesn't get anybody to answer the door when she goes to make her visit. <laughs> you know, there have been all kinds of experiences where, where they just forget to tell hospice and that's fine. So then the nurse will come with paperwork to discharge the patient and we'll, and we'll put the discharge date as the date they went to the hospital. And then that will be the, the, the end of the period, their benefit period, and that will that will will solve that problem with the retroactive. But I think one thing that we haven't talked about that I think is really important too, and it's something that people ask about, is what happens if they don't qualify for hospice at one of these recertifications? You know, if a patient has been admitted to hospice and let's say they start gaining weight or they aren't declining and they've just plateaued with their with their symptoms then those then that's why that visit from the physician uh, for the face to face that's why those nursing assessments up to that point are so important because they'll be planning for that patient's discharge and so that's not something that happens out of the blue and then all of a sudden the family gets a phone call by the way hospice is ending thank you very much have a nice day so that's something that our the team will come in and say listen it looks like we might be discharging your loved one from hospice and then the hospice will work to set that person up on the outside of hospice with the things that they need, making sure that they're reconnected to their primary care physician, making sure that if they need oxygen or that hospital bed, there are ways that we can work with that. And usually we want to put them back into some sort of care like home health, something that will be supportive. Because honestly, we would expect that maybe in the next three to six to nine months, that patient would be back to us in hospice again. So we keep them close, but we can no longer bill for them in hospice because their, their condition has changed. And we call that graduating from hospice. And that's sometimes around 10% of hospice patients do end up graduating. There's so yeah. much to talk about with hospice. I literally, okay, Kathy's coming back. I made an executive decision. <laughs> This was really awesome. I would awesome. be happy to. I, I, I love doing deep dives. And uh, Kathy, this has been tremendously informative and helpful and uh, just amazing. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much. I love talking about this. I really do. So what's our website name, Alex? 
Yeah. So thanks everybody. Masteringmedicare.net. You can find us there. We love doing deep dives in the healthcare and elder care and payer space. So if you want to reach out to us, email us. It's amy at masteringmedicare.net or alex at masteringmedicare.net. We have a Facebook group. We have a Mastering Medicare cheat sheet. Just uh, let us know. Reach out to us. We love hearing from our readers and, and listeners and watchers. Uh, <laughs> Kathy, thank you so much for thank you uh, so much. Yes. this deep dive. Thank you this for was having so me. informative. I love it. You have been listening to the Mastering Medicare podcast. Visit masteringmedicare.net for show notes, additional episodes, and valuable resources. 